what is the relationship between public media and social media? Since its emergence over a decade ago, social networks have provided an exciting opportunity for public broadcasters to reach younger audiences and provide fresh content. But recent headlines about two networks in particular have shone a spotlight on the intersection of public and social media. Twitter has really put to the forefront how problematic it is for social media platforms to just randomly make up policy that affects media and access to information. When it comes to TikTok, we are trying to be careful. We're trying to understand what the platform is about and what the risks are. What do these issues tell us about what it means for public service broadcasters to be on social media? What responsibilities does being on social platforms put on the broadcaster? for the well-being of both their own staff and indeed their own brand. And when the mission and values which govern social media are so different, can public service media actually survive on these platforms? It's not the question of the viability of the public broadcasters, it's the question of the model of our democracy. I'm Harry Locke and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. Social media, for better or for worse, has changed the landscape for the media industry, changed the picture for what it means to be a public service broadcaster. I have a completely different job today than it was 20 years ago. Yes, completely different. That's Jean-Paul Filippo, the CEO of Belgium's francophonie public broadcaster, RTBF. He's been in that position since 2002. But before we hear from him again, let's quickly return to the late noughties, the primitive days of social media. I switched from from the core business of of radio to to the digital in, I think it was in 2008. And at that time, social media wasn't really social media yet. And what we were doing were introducing comment sections and... and Christian Gillinger is the head of social media for Swedish radio. That sort of transformed when when Twitter came along in 2009 and Facebook, and and then it just evolved. But you must have seen, I mean, just uh, the whole change, right? And and the, the change in news media and the importance that social media has had over your time then that must have been a really sort of really fascinating to to think about and it sort of makes me feel a little old right now (laughs) thinking back at it but yes yes that as well that as well (laughs) from the offset christian could spy the opportunities that social media presented i think our main focus and our main gain uh, with social media that we try to focus on is the dialogue and the connecting with the audience talking to them using it as a way to make sure that our journalism stays relevant and that the topics and, and everything that we cover are relevant to the audience, sort of like we do in our uh, normal analog life when we you know, leave the radio houses and make sure that we are out talking to people. Looking back to the beginning of social media now, it's clear something's changed. The opportunity is still there. And it's still a really important way for public media to gain direct access to those elusive young audiences. But social media has now morphed and become another tricky issue which public media organisations need to manage. Back in the early days, Jean-Paul accepts that having identified all these benefits and embracing social media full throttle, they didn't necessarily stop to also consider the risks. In the first years of this revolution, we didn't assess enough the power and the limits. Now they are impossible to ignore. Jean-Paul has identified four main risks. First one is what I call the Twitter case. The capacity for the social networks to qualify 
the media. When they decide that BBC is a government-funded media or Radio-Canada or France Television, and we have to negotiate, which is absolutely absurd, with the social networks to agree the term which will qualify our content. It's unacceptable. The second one is the, the risk assessed by TikTok. It's the protection of the data. The third risk is the stability of the model. And we saw every broadcaster, every media discover uh, one day that the referencement of his content is completely changed without any previous information and without any kind of explanation. The black box of the algorithm. And the fourth one is the anonymity. The anonymity which which is now the first cause of verbal aggression from the audience to our journalists and which create an incredible pressure on journalists and with the risk of auto-limitation uh, from the newsrooms to uh, avoid any kind of bashing. I'm going to explore two of these risks in detail. First, the Twitter categorization saga, and second, the TikTok security threat. Let's start with Twitter. In April this year, Twitter, with no notice or warning, put a label on the main profile of NPR, the US public radio network. The label read, State Affiliated. A few days later, and the label was subsequently changed to government-funded. And this time, PBS, VOA and the BBC were also included. After that, the social network then rolled out an inconsistent patchwork of labels to numerous public broadcasters around the world, from RAI to RNZ, CBC Radio Canada to KBS. Some were defined as publicly funded, others as government funded. But it was clear that there was no rulebook informing who was labelled what. A few tempestuous weeks later, and Twitter finally came to the decision to remove all labels. However, they even included the state-controlled broadcasters, such as Russia Today. My name is Courtney Raj. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the UCLA Institute for Technology, Law and Policy, and a fellow at the Center for Democracy and Technology and uh, the Center for International Governance Innovation. Courtney Raj has worked with digital platforms in the past, advising them on the process of labelling. So why was the approach by Twitter so awkward for public broadcasters? I think that Twitter has really put to the forefront how problematic it is for social media platforms to just randomly make up policy that affects media and access to information, credibility for people around the world, and making unilateral decisions about which media should get which labels, which have not only implications on the platform itself, but also broader safety monetization, economic implications as well. The Twitter saga of the past few weeks with the labeling has just shown how mercurial Elon Musk is as a social media platform owner, how captive journalists have been to this particular platform, which is, you know, a relatively elite outlet that they enjoy, you know, talking to each other on, but is not necessarily at all representative of either America or the world. And you mentioned there the actual implications that this have on the public broadcasters themselves. Can, can, can you explain that in a bit more detail? I mean, is this reputational implications or, or, or where else? 
Sure. So there are a few different implications of labels. One is what sort of signal does it send to a reader or, you know, someone who's watching a video online? Stating that a media outlet is government controlled or state aligned or state affiliated sends a message. Basically, it implies that there is a lack of editorial independence between the owner or the funder of that outlet and the editorial production of the outlet. And that's really problematic when you're talking about public interest media like National Public Radio, Deutsche Welle, BBC, you know, any of these public service media around the world, because they are specifically designed to ensure editorial independence and firewalls between any sort of government funding or public funding and the decisions of its editorial staff. So in addition to the the signal that sends, it can be very dangerous to be labeled as a state-controlled or government-funded entity. It has safety implications for journalists and news outlets, especially in countries where there are foreign agent registration requirements or foreign agent restrictions. And it's also a safety issue for the sources for those media. If you're reaching out, say, as a whistleblower or from a war zone, you want to make sure that you are getting in touch with the actual journalist or media outlet that is verified and labeled as that. There are also algorithmic implications and economic implications. On certain platforms, it will restrict the recommendation or the inclusion of that site in recommendation algorithms. It can restrict the ability of that account to advertise or to monetize its content. Inaccurate and misleading labels, especially ones which imply a form of government editorial control, can be enormously damaging. And a major concern is how that sort of association would impact audience trust in the independence of these organisations. But what about accurate labels? Is the process of labelling in itself flawed or, or do you think that publicly funded label does have some merit? So, yeah, I actually think that publicly funded media should have welcomed that sort of label. Being a publicly funded outlet should be a badge of honor. It means that this outlet has editorial credibility and is serving the public interest to the extent that it receives public funding from the citizenry. The more information we can give users about the transparency of ownership and funding of different media, the better. And I think that's one of the things that distinguishes publicly funded media from state media in a lot of cases is they have public budgets. They open their books, their editorial policies, their correction policies, their um, you know budgets to public scrutiny in a way that state media like RT or Sputnik, for example, do not. Part of the problem is that these digital platforms all have their own way of assessing and categorizing. So is there an alternative method? What would be better, however, is besides them, you know, choosing who they want to listen to as experts and which reports they want to read about state-owned media, etc., would be to use existing self-regulatory bodies in the journalism profession, like press associations, the Journalism Trust Initiative, or the Trust Project, or, you know, any of these kind of information integrity initiatives, press councils, standard-setting bodies, so I would like to see us as the journalism community and the news industry propose actually what labels different media should 
get rather than the platforms just deciding in a black box. Twitter's decision to apply these labels betrayed a level of trust that public broadcasters had in the platform prior. Many public media organisations use the moment to reconsider its use of the platform. In some instances, NPR and PBS, for example, they stopped using the platform completely. Others, such as CBC Radio Canada and RNZ, have closed down a number of their accounts, but kept their main one active, albeit in a limited capacity. For Courtney Raj, since the Elon Musk takeover, more broadcasters need to be taking stronger steps. And that's not just because of the labelling. The platform has gotten markedly worse in terms of online harassment, hate speech, Nazism, anti-blackness, homophobia, you know, a whole slew of really horrible things happen on that platform on a much more regular basis, in part because Musk has eviscerated the trust and safety teams, reduced the staff that are working on content moderation, and taken the perspective that somehow free speech for some equates with the drowning out of speech of others. So this platform has become very different in the past several months. And I think that seeing a principled stand to say, look, we don't want to put our journalists and our accounts and lend our credibility to a platform that does not engage in the basic necessities of what a social platform needs to do in this era, which is have robust content moderation, harassment escalation channels, um, you know, mitigating the use of its platform for hate speech platforms in this era, especially, the, you know, these really global, large scale platforms like Twitter need to have those in place. So we should see media organizations saying, like, we're not going to use this anymore. This episode is interesting because it demonstrates how public service media organizations in using third party platforms are ultimately beholden to the will and wishes of the management of those platforms. And when being on these platforms is damaging your brand, does that outweigh the value of being there in the first place? While we're talking about Twitter, it's worth also highlighting a recent decision made by Swedish radio to pull out completely and not because of the labeling. Instead, that was because it wasn't deemed to be worth it anymore. It's sometimes argued that Twitter has an outsized influence, that despite the relatively small number of users, it's the type of users which really matters. Politicians, journalists, authorities, executives, corporate accounts. But should that argument, even if it is true, keep public broadcasters there? We have seen that it doesn't give us that much value, when we, especially when we go to the numbers, when we check on... Uh, how many are people talking to us on Twitter? Are people clicking the links? Are they becoming listeners? All those uh, sort of key points that we try to to measure against. And we've seen that Twitter doesn't really add that much. I think the main reason that we stayed so long is we've uh, judged that the platform sort of, I'm not sure the English expression punches above its weight. Uh, it's smaller, but it's uh, influential. But we haven't actually seen that. That, that argument you, you hear a lot and I think, you know, there's maybe some resistance from some to give it too much weight. But I think that, that there is certainly a case for that in that, OK, it's not necessarily about how many, it's about who is on the platform. If you sort of subscribe to that belief, was there anything that happened which meant actually the value we get from reaching audiences isn't there, but but it's still worth being there because of who's on it? When did that mindset change? 
when did you decide actually it's not even worth it anymore i think that for me uh, that was a couple of years ago i think uh, when i started this uh, the position that i am in now what what i started doing then was measuring more systematically and accessing all the counts and making sure that we knew what we were measuring and why and when i got to twitter what i saw was the the link as i said the links became they they remained unclicked and then you could argue that well it might be an influential audience but if they don't click our links if they don't reply to us if they don't interact with the tweets you know like retweet or whatever then you have to ask yourself are you really influencing the influential audience is it actually doing what you are hoping it would do or just or just uh, sort of a standing in the corner of a crowded room nobody paying attention to you I came to the conclusion that we were that guy in the in the corner of the room. If if I can just put a, a sort of counter argument, one thing that that we at the Public Media Alliance talk about a lot when it comes to social media is the value for audiences that that a trusted, verified news organisation that you know, the, the editorial values that that they abide by, means that in this sort of cesspit of people basically being allowed to say whatever they want, which certainly seems to be the case in Twitter at the moment, that actually in that environment, it's actually really useful to have a public service broadcaster there to provide truth and verified information. Do you worry at all that if you pull out that they might not be able to access that anymore? Yeah, we've we've had that discussion, not not so much uh, on Twitter, but first I would like to argue that the uh, yes, uh, it's important that the audience get access to independent, reliable information or journalism in our case. But I think that the safety of the platform, first and foremost, is the responsibility of the platform itself, and they got tools for that. One of those tools are the verification system that has been sort of seen changes on Twitter. Secondly, I would say that we are a publicly funded company. We have to use our, our money wisely and we are not on all platforms and we can't be on all platforms. We are not on one, one notable exception is YouTube. We are not that much on YouTube. It's a huge platform. We could argue that it would be great to be there to provide reliable journalism, but we are a radio company, so we don't do that. We are not on Reddit. And when I look at the surveys and, and everything that's been done, I see no indication that Twitter is the only platform for its users. They are on different platforms. And if you accept the notion that they are, a, they are the politicians, they are the journalists, they are a, a crowd that has access to information, are pretty good at getting it. So I think if we had to uh, put that into a factor, uh, then I don't think that's the audience that we would put uh, our money and time on. Christian looks at the data every single month. He measures the engagement, the clicks, the likes, the shares on all the platforms where Swedish radio is present. And every four months, he does a more in-depth analysis. What sort of content are they posting? What headlines are they writing? What does best? Understanding which platforms are providing the best value for public service media and public money is critical. In 2023, there's no shortage of digital platforms which public broadcasters could decide to go on. But are they all worth it? What value do they bring to both corporation and audience? This is now an essential part of the discussion that public media needs to engage with. Recently, there's been one platform which has presented an enormous opportunity. 
TikTok, the audience there, when we look at the surveys, are young, inexperienced. They are more on social media. I saw a recent poll showed that 48% of Swedish millennials and 51% of Generation Z gets their daily news from social media. When we look at what platforms they use, it's Instagram and TikTok, and they don't necessarily get their information from our apps and websites. A young audience in need of reliable and independent information who don't otherwise access public service content. The argument for public broadcasters to be on TikTok is compelling. But there is also a major question to go with it over data security. That was something I put to Anne-Sophie Letellier and Philippe Edmond, who head CBC Radio Canada's cybersecurity department. We heard from them in the previous episode. TikTok, I want to quickly ask about as well, because it's clearly a really pressing issue for, I mean, government level sort of discussions, let let alone public broadcasters. There's such an argument for public broadcasters to be on there to reach audiences that they aren't reaching now. So, so TikTok does present that opportunity. But what is CBC Radio Canada's position on that at the moment? Uh, and how serious do you actually consider the threat of TikTok? So... If I may say, there there is a, a geopolitical risk on that that one that we all face that, that Canada is facing, and, and at the same time we we have to realize the mission that we are existing for. So if we if we want to be able to reach our audience, we need to be able to be present on the the platform that they use. So I think it's it's the key element here. On my side, again, it's the guidance that we provide that will be able to address that one. We want to make sure that people uh, that will have to use TikTok for for their mission will be able to do that in a secure way. I don't think we can really prevent people to be using TikTok. Yeah, and uh, I think along the same lines, when I think cybersecurity is about looking at all the different kinds of risk related to one situation. And I think cybersecurity is one of the risks in that context. When we think about TikTok, I think one of uh, the the risks, I think that is a legitimate one, is the data privacy issue. That is also an issue, I think, for all of the other social media platforms, to be fair. Uh, But the difference with TikTok is that the data is stored in a country that has geopolitical tension and for which like people are worried. I think the risk is not blown out of proportion because we have seen in the past, uh, notably with Cambridge Analytica, how data from social media can be used to have an impact on democratic processes. But afterwards, we also need to look at the business risk. So to leave that platform when a lot of public broadcaster need to be there for for reaching an audience. And after, we can also name a broader, I would say, democracy risk. What happens if all legitimate sources of information disengage with TikTok and with the platform? Public service media are adopting their own protective measures, only having TikTok installed on select corporate devices, for example. These approaches aren't 100% protective, but nothing really is other than not being on the platform at all. And for now, many public broadcasters don't see that as an option. On the scales, the value of being there reaching young audiences is outbalancing the possible risks. This compromise again highlights that the way in which public media uses and engages with social media is now utterly different from 10 years ago. 
when we started with Facebook and Twitter back in 2009, 2008, everybody started accounts. It was uh, like the wild, wild west. No rules and, and, and no regulations. We just jumped on the train and started learning. We are not doing that now. When it comes to TikTok, we've decided that we do this on a trial basis. I think we have four or five newsrooms or shows that are on TikTok and we do a very careful evaluation or have a very careful evaluation process on one hand. We are trying to be careful. We're trying to understand what the platform is about and what the risks are. On the other hand, what we see is that the majority of our young users are on TikTok to an extremely high degree. To put a positive spin on it, at least we know the risks now. We know what could happen and we can take appropriate steps and improve our decision making. We had the clubhouse craze a couple of years ago, I think two years ago, and we took a very careful stance that one of the reasons was that clubhouse at that time asked for access to your contact list when you enrolled. And we had journalists that were sort of, we don't want, we have sources in our contact list. And when I looked back, the same thing had been true for other platforms with Facebook in the early years. Uh, they used uh, the contact list and they put, I, mean, I remember Android phones when they came with from Google, uh, you could connect your Facebook accounts to get all the pictures from your Facebook friends in your contact list. So that is nothing new. But I remember when, when Clubhouse came, I, I noted that everyone sort of, understood that that was a risk and they hadn't done that five or ten years prior. So I think we are much more careful now with what we do and we are more aware what we give access to. What both the Twitter labelling situation and the TikTok data security concerns demonstrate is that regardless of ownership structure and whether or not you trust the platform, when you use a third-party platform, either as an individual or as an organisation, you are surrendering control. So a final question to ponder. Is that good enough? Jean-Paul Filippo. We cannot build our strategy for the future and our strategy to connect young audience through social networks. So what we have to reach in the next years is to address and connect the majority of all the audience through our own platforms. We need to fix targets, I don't know, 70 or 75% reach of all the audience through our own platforms. And then when we, 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 we realize this reach, cut the links with social networks. It's perhaps a dream, but it's a necessity be able to reach all the audience, especially the youngest, through our own platforms to cut the, the, the links with social networks and abandon uh, the cooperation and uh, uh, abandon to produce and uh, content, especially for this kind of distribution uh, system. That, that's really interesting. And do you have a sort of time frame for when you would like to make that, make that move? Not yet. And at the same time, I strongly believe and I'm convinced that together, public media and probably public and private commercial media, we have to lobby to have a better, a stronger regulation of all the model. Because there is two points of view. What I described uh, up to now is the position of a public broadcaster. But if 
I move from my position as CEO of a public broadcaster to my personal position as citizen, social networks is an incredible leverage for all polarization systems. It contributes to destroying the society. And as citizen, as citizen of a European democratic country, living together enhance the, 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 the power of the diversity, protect everyone, listen and respect everyone, are keys. And social networks didn't contribute to that model. With the, the, the digital transformation, we move from society of information to the society of data. And it provides another model. And this model is far away from the democratic uh, values. So it's not the question of the viability of the public broadcasters. It's the question of the model of our democracy. So can anything be done to wrestle back control from the digital giants? More on that in the next episode. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Media Uncovered. And thanks to my guests, Jean-Paul Filippo, Christian Gillinger, Courtney Raj and Sophie Letellier and Philippe Edmond. If you want to find out more about social media and public media, head to our website, publicmediaalliance.org. You can also sign up to our weekly newsletter where we feature our latest reports and features, as well as upcoming projects and events. We're currently offering exclusive discounts to PMA members for the Radio Days Asia Conference in Kuala Lumpur in September. Head to the events section of our website for more details. We'll be on the ground in Malaysia and hosting a couple of sessions as well. Thanks as always to Lucas Thompson, Rachel Still and Tom Brazier for the music.